0: Okay, so you've probably already got it there. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume Well, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, "'I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. "'You have judged correctly,' Jesus said. "'Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, "'Do you see this woman? "'I came into your house. "'You did not give me any water for my feet. "'But she wet my feet with her tears "'and wiped them with her hair. "'You did not give me a kiss.' But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace.
1: Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and help us, Lord, to understand your word. Open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear of your grace and love and forgiveness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, judging by my physical appearance, I could understand if you found it hard to believe that I was once pretty fit and slim. But it's true, asked Karen, mainly because I spent about half of my life playing soccer. Clearly that was the first half, not the second half. The wheels have fallen off. However, I was never an elite sportsman like this fellow. His name is Mark Foe and he's a star player in the Cameroon National Soccer Team. And this is a photo of him playing in 2003. Now by this stage of his career, he'd represented his country 65 times and he'd played in two World Cup tournaments. But this game, it was obviously his 66th game for Cameroon, it was the very, very last game that Mark ever played in. You see, he suddenly dropped dead from a heart attack in the 72nd minute of the game. And now Mark, he was only 28. And I can't imagine he would have ever thought he would die from a heart attack at such a young age, but he did. After all, playing soccer was his full-time job and fitness would have been his obsession. I suspect he would have been training six or seven days a week, virtually every week of the year. And as I was looking into this incident, I was somewhat surprised in my um, journey through the internet and so on that over the years there's been many, many both very fit men and very fit women who've died from heart failure during a sporting competition in a whole raft and range of sports. You might recall all the media coverage about 18 months ago when this fellow suddenly died. His name is... Anybody know? Andy Irons. And he was amongst the world's best surfers and he was a three-time world surfing champion. Now, clearly the photos show that he too was in great physical condition. But at the age of just 32, he died from a heart attack during a surfing competition. Tragically, Andy's wife was seven months pregnant with their first child when he died. So as I said, there are many other examples of high-performance athletes who have suddenly died at the peak of their physical ability. And you have to wonder how this can possibly happen, don't you? I could understand it happening to me, but not to them. Just like Mark and Andy, they would have been a picture of exceptional physical health. But despite the outward appearance of their well-conditioned bodies, each of them had an unseen fatal problem in their hearts. So although, although they appeared to be healthy on the outside, Unknown to them, they were very sick inside. And I'm wondering now if this could possibly describe your condition. Because this is the very issue that today's passage is addressing in Luke's Gospel in chapter 7 that Michelle read earlier. But it's not talking about physical condition. Rather, it's addressing a serious spiritual condition. So if you've closed your Bibles up, I'd encourage you to open them back up at Luke chapter 7. At verse thirty-six, as we look into this issue, the scene described in this passage opens with a dinner party, and this party was hosted by a chap called Simon, who was a Pharisee. Now he seems curious about Jesus, and so inviting, um, and so inviting home for dinner, seemed like a good way for Simon to find out more about Jesus. You probably know that the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the Jews during the time of um, Jesus' ministry and there's much that could be said about the Pharisees but for right now it's sufficient to know that they were motivated to preserve the unique cultural and religious identity of the Jewish people at the time. And that, what is that? That is, they were the people of God. They were determined to be counter-cultural to the ruling Roman pagan way of life to be pure and holy as God had originally intended. And in order to maintain this purity, the Pharisees drew up hundreds of rules to help their people and they believed that by scrupulously following all of God's laws and their own set of rules, that God would save them and bless them. And this is why when a Jew named Jesus came onto the scene as a so-called prophet, they were suspicious of him. Now, why was that? Well, on the one hand, Jesus seemed to share their agenda. That's the good good news, to get back to the Bible and to help others draw close to God. However, on the other hand, he clearly didn't seem to care for their strict purity rules. And we only have to go back two verses in this chapter to verse 34 to learn from Jesus himself what the Pharisees were accusing him of. Let's have a quick look at that. Verse 34 chapter 7. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, you see, this is nothing short of a slur on Jesus' character. In other words, the Pharisees were saying that this Jesus is a really dodgy guy. You can't trust him. He's probably a party animal. He's not respectable. And he's certainly not like one of us because he willingly associates with impure and unclean people. He'd never make a good Pharisee. In the knowledge that he's seen like this by the Pharisees and has often been stalked and confronted by them, even this early in his ministry, it's interesting that Jesus readily accepted the dinner invitation from Simon. But we should also note the risk that Simon has taken for his own reputation amongst his peers. By associating with Jesus in this way, he himself is opening himself up to be ridiculed because rightly or wrongly, some people think that those who hang out with dodgy people must themselves be dodgy. Now, meals in the first century in Palestine, such as this one, were not private events and they weren't held behind closed doors often. Homes had open courtyards and the social convention at the time was that anyone was allowed to come and stand around and observe what was going on. Now perhaps it was a bit like fans that hang around hotels or restaurants these days hoping to catch a glimpse of their favourite movie star. Well, Jesus was a well-known figure. They may very well have liked to see him in the flesh just, just as he dined at. Simon's Table. However, these people couldn't get autographs. In fact, these people were required to remain strictly in the background. They were not to be heard. They could not and dare not speak to the guests. And they certainly couldn't make any grabs for food on the table. Although I did read that after dinner's over, they can beg for what's left over. This painting shows how the invited guests ate at meals like this. They were typically lying down, as you can see, propped up on one elbow, their heads at the table and their feet facing outwards. So if there were a number of guests at the table, you could well visualise that it looked like the spokes of a wagon wheel. The table is the hub and all these people coming out from it. Hard to get to somebody's head. So as the story in today's passage unfolds, we learn that there was an unnamed woman who didn't stick to the social norms for onlookers and sticky beaks. She didn't come for the food and she didn't come merely to catch a glimpse of the local celebrity. She came with a purpose and we find that described in verses 37 and 38. So let's have a look at that. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. So in some ways we're not told much about this woman. We certainly don't get a name. Luke doesn't record a name for her. In fact, he doesn't record the name of the town where she lives. But there are some clues in this text about what type of person or what sort of person this woman was. So just from those two verses alone that I just read, how would you characterise this woman? Any ideas about what she might have did did for a living? How about I point out a couple of clues, then you can have a rethink. Everybody seemed to know her in the town and the nature of the sin. She possessed expensive perfume. And unlike other women of the time, she was not ashamed to let down her hair and use it. Any clues? Is anyone thinking along the lines that she was possibly a prostitute? If you are, I think you're right. She probably was a lady of the night perhaps operating in the red-light district of town. Her perfume and her hair were her tools of trade. Everybody knew who she was and what she did for a living. Now on a scale of zero to ten for sinful behaviour, she was probably nine or ten in the eyes of the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have rated themselves as zero, maybe worst case a one. But from the eyes of the Pharisees, she would have been seen as grossly unclean and impure. Virtually the worst of sinners. Pharisees would not be caught dead associated with people like her. I've already suggested that Simon took a risk to have Jesus over to his place for dinner. But by comparison, this woman is taking an even bigger risk to show up at Simon's house. And why am I saying that? because a prostitute was certainly not welcome in the home of a Pharisee. The clean and pure do not allow themselves to come into any possible contact with the unclean and the impure. So not only did the grossest of sinners dare to come to Simon's house, but this woman also breaks some of the rules for uninvited guests. She now dares to make contact with Simon's guest, Jesus. And remember, Jesus is someone who Simon is at least prepared to consider as being at least as clean and pure as he is. How do we know that? Because he was allowing him to dine at his table. Nevertheless, in the full view of the public, this woman starts weeping profusely, wetting Jesus' feet with her tears, and then she dries her feet with her hair after she unashamedly loosens it. She kisses his feet and she pours an expensive jar of perfume over his his feet. And these jars of perfume were one use. They were in a sealed bottle, they had to break the neck of the bottle and once that happened they had to use the whole whole jar. No doubt Simon and his other guests saw this as absolutely scandalous behaviour. After all, didn't Jesus know who this woman was? To let her hair down in this setting would have almost been on par with a woman in Saudi Arabia walking around in a bikini. She then kisses his feet, which is outrageous. Jesus should know that rabbis didn't even speak to women in public, let alone allow them to fondle their feet. Good women just don't do these sort of things in first century Palestine. But now, if Simon was harboring any doubts about whether this Jesus was somebody God had sent... I'd say his doubts were now confirmed. We can see what he was thinking in verse 39. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited him, that's Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. In other words, Simon concludes that Jesus mustn't be a man of God like himself, let alone a prophet because he obviously doesn't know how sinful this woman is and he certainly wouldn't be letting someone who was so unclean touch him. And here's the irony. The irony is that Jesus in fact knows everything about this woman and Simon as well. He knows the condition of both their hearts. One is contrite and the other is self-righteous. And he even knows what Simon is thinking. Did you notice that in verse 39? Simon said to himself what he said. He didn't say it out loud. He didn't direct a comment at Jesus. But there you are. Jesus even knows what Simon is thinking. But yet Jesus proceeds to respond to Simon's musing by telling him a short parable in the next couple of verses, verses 41 to 43. So let's read that little parable, verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. So to put some scale on that, 50 denarii is about two months wages for a labourer in first century Palestine. So 500 denarii is 10 times that. It's about 20 months salary, wages. But there's three important truths from today's passage that I want want you to take away with you. And the first one is we all owe God a debt that we cannot possibly repay. I trust that even up to now you've been able to see that Simon, for all his respectability, and just like the woman, he owes a debt to God as well. He might not be aware of it, actually, but he owes one just the same. And what is this debt? Well, he owes a debt of obedience. And whenever he fails to obey, he sins. Now, sin's not a really fashionable word these days, is it? But we really do need to understand what it is so that we can avoid doing it. I've come across what I think might be a helpful description of what sin is. And this definition says that sin is any failure... Conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude and nature. So I want to say that again so you, you get it. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude or nature. So this woman, the prostitute, knows she's a sinner. She's in no danger of fooling herself about her desperate state. And whatever her circumstances, she knows that she had failed God and she knows that she'd failed him badly. But what about Simon? What do you think his view might be about his own sinfulness? I reckon that Simon felt he didn't know God a lot, perhaps even nothing at all. After all, Simon was a pious man. He goes to the synagogue every Saturday, he prays often, He gives money scrupulously. He knows his scriptures really well. And he seeks to uphold all the laws and rules in every area of his life, no matter how small. As far as people can tell by looking at him from the outside, Simon looks spiritually and morally fit. But he's not, is he? Just like Mark Foe and Andy Irons, Simon has a fatal problem in his heart. You see, it doesn't matter whether it's 50 denarii or 500 denarii. Jesus says in verse 42, Simon too owes a debt that he can't repay. Is Simon, for all his best efforts, able to measure up to God's perfect moral standards? What about you? If you were Simon, would you be able to say in all honesty that you're sure you haven't committed adultery? And by that I mean, as Jesus says, have you ever lusted after another woman, if you're a bloke? Or a bloke, if you're a woman? And sure, both you and Simon have not murdered anybody, I'm fairly confident. But did you ever hate another person? And sure, you and Simon haven't stolen any of your neighbours' things, I'm pretty confident to say. But have you ever coveted what they had? So Simon might look spiritually fit on the outside, just like we might think we look spiritually fit also. But Jesus is saying we are all actually spiritually sick on the inside. In his letters to the Romans, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul helps us to understand why Jesus says this. So if you keep your thumb in Luke 7 and flick over to Romans chapter 3 at verse 10... I'll read a couple of verses. This is Romans chapter 3 at verse 10. Paul records that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. But you see, Jesus can offer Simon and those like him a cure, a way out. But this can only be received if he admits he's sick. Until then, he can't benefit from this cure. His debt is still outstanding. He can't pay it on his own. So my friends, I need to ask you this. Do you really know your divine creator? the one who has lovingly made you, the one who has a wonderful plan for you? Do you realise we, you and I, owe him a great debt, a debt we can't ever possibly repay? Do you understand that no matter how good we look on the outside, we all have fatal problems in our heart? Do you know we all fall short of God's perfect standards? The second truth from today's passage I want you to understand is that our sins reflect the conditions of our heart. You see, every act of wrongdoing leads to guilt and guilt arouses in us a longing for forgiveness. Guilt to our conscience is like a pain to our body. It's like a warning signal that tells us something is not right. Guilt tells us that there is something that is threatening our health and needs to be cured. It nudges us to reconcile to those who we have wronged. To be free of guilt, we need forgiveness. To be made whole again, the greater the sin, the greater the feeling of liberation when forgiveness is received. Is that your experience? This is what the woman felt when she saw Jesus. The tears, the kissing of the feet, the pouring of the perfume, these all betrayed the emotion she felt. Gratitude. Devotion, reverence, care. Her actions may be seen as somewhat extravagant, but it showed the depth of her feelings to God. This is the impact God's forgiveness has on a person's life. This is what it looks like. This is how she declared her love for Jesus. But in our day and age, to be devoted, to be committed to anything, can be seen somewhat suspiciously by other people. It seems to be over the top, maybe even sometimes extravagant. Do some people look at you and say, isn't it just too much to be coming to church regularly, going to Bible study groups, doing mission work, leading youth groups and organising church camps? But you see, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when God's forgiveness impacts somebody's life. This is what it looks like when people experience God's overwhelming grace and love. This woman's devotion to Jesus is the natural outcome of receiving God's forgiveness. See, forgiveness is liberating. Forgiveness restores a broken relationship. Forgiveness frees us from the prison of guilt. Forgiveness is transforming. Forgiveness means we can live again with joy. Forgiveness means God won't dwell on the sinner's past. Forgiveness is forward-looking. Forgiveness means a second chance. Jesus asked Simon in verse 44, do you see this woman? Well, who did Simon see when he looked at her? Did he see her for all that she has been, all that she has done, her past? Or for what God can make of her? Can he look beyond her sins? Can he see how God can make even her new? She's acting in this way because she had experienced God's forgiveness. So in verse 47, Jesus says, She who is forgiven much, loves God much. But boy, doesn't this stand out in direct contrast to Simon. For all his offence to the woman's scandalous actions... Simon himself didn't measure up to his own standards. Yes, she broke the social conventions of her time. But the question is, did Simon live up to his? See, inwardly, he compared himself favourably against her. But Jesus says otherwise. otherwise. This is the point of the next few verses, verses 44 to 46. These verses talk about what Simon didn't do and what the woman did in terms of receiving a guest into his home. So do you realise that if we focus on other people's failings, we can lose sight of our own? As the host, Simon should have done at least three things when Jesus arrived. He should have washed his feet, should have at least given him a kiss on the cheek, or in our day, shaken his hand or given him a hug and he should have poured oil of oil on his head. In these verses, Jesus is essentially saying to Simon, don't keep looking at her and think she is the sinner. Look at yourself. You don't even measure up to your own standards. If you didn't measure up to these little acts of hospitality, how could you put yourself above this woman when she did all these things and more? Her actions, rather than a scandal, ought to commend her and shame him. See, Simon was so focused on her sinfulness that he couldn't see his own failings. He was not as perfect or upright as he thought he was. He was measuring himself with the wrong standards. He looked good compared to her using his own standards, but when Jesus uses another standard, he comes off looking very poor indeed. What if Simon was weighed against God's perfect moral standards? So Jesus is saying to Simon and to us, your actions reflect the conditions of your heart. And this is what he means in verse 47 also when he says, he who has been forgiven little loves God little. So what does that mean for us? Well, to some of us here, we may think there is nothing substantially sinful at all in our lives. Compared to others, we might think we're doing pretty fine, thank you very much, we're okay. But what if we use God's standard to measure ourselves? How would we look then? Do you need God's forgiveness? Have you received it? Because we all need it. So the third and last truth from today's passage I want you to understand is that Jesus, and only Jesus, Jesus, has the only authority to forgive our debt. See, the other guests rightly ask in verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? In other words, who does he think he is? A person can only forgive another party if he himself is the offended party. If I wronged you in some way, then the only person that can forgive me is you. But what if another person was to come through that door right now and said he forgives me? Well, it's none of his business, is it? He doesn't have any right to say that to me. I would think he was conceited. And if, if he was truly thinking that he was the offended party. But you see, look at Jesus' statement in verse forty eight. He has forgiven the woman's sins, and that can only make sense if he is God. All our wrongdoings, our sins are ultimately an offence against him, our creator and divine moral lawgiver. Simon concluded that Jesus was something less than a prophet or even himself. But it's clear from Jesus' words and actions that he's more than the prophet, far more. Just as Simon made the mistake of judging the woman, he has also made the mistake of judging Jesus. So who is Jesus to you? Are you looking at him through Simon's eyes or the woman's eyes? As you look around today, what do you see? If you're a Christian, how do you see others who are not like you? Do you only see their past record as sinners? Or do you see somebody that God loves? Do you see someone so precious and matters to God so much that he sent his son to die for them so that they might receive God's forgiveness? and eternal life. What do you see? If you're not a Christian, how do you see Jesus? How do you see others that have put their trust in him? Are their actions too over the top for you? Too extravagant? Just too much? Well, too bad. Jesus says this is what a life that has been touched by him looks like. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Tragically, it did not even occur to Mark Foe and Andy Lyons to check if they had some kind of heart problem. Have you considered the possibility that you too may have a heart problem? And I mean spiritually, not physically. Although you might look alright on the outside, the Bible says this is not the case on the inside. My friends, do you need forgiveness? Come to Jesus, put your trust in him. He can make you whole. He can wipe away your tears. He can wipe away your regrets. He can wipe away your past. He can offer you forgiveness and a new life both in the present and in the one beyond death. We don't know what Simon did in the end but we know about the woman. She believed and Jesus says to her in verse 50, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And Jesus will say this to you, if only you believe and trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have a great plan and destiny for us, even before we drew our very first breath. We're sorry, Lord, that we don't measure up to your standards. But we are thankful, Lord, that you are not a divine tyrant who comes and only wants to point out our shortcomings, but offer us love and grace. Help us, Lord, to come to you with open arms to receive your forgiveness and feel the freedom that it brings. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.